Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Today I'll be reading out of Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. If you have your Bibles, bring them out. If you don't, just listen along. At one time, too, we were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I leaned over to Jessica right when we started singing that first song, Rock of Ages, and I said, wow, our church can sing. It was so great to hear your voices this morning. There's a a mutual um, encouragement that happens when we sing together on Sundays, and I'm, I'm always so grateful for that. Well, if this is uh, your first time with us, I know you've already been welcome, but I want to welcome you again. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been walking through a, uh, a book of the Bible, a small book of the Bible that would be pretty easy to skip, uh, and many of you have, and that's okay, uh, but we're not skipping it as a church, um, the book of Titus. And this, this book was written to a church that was still forming in a community that was uh, unfamiliar with who Jesus was and what it meant to follow Jesus. And so uh, in the last month, we've been um, walking through this, trying to place ourselves in their context so we can understand the words of this passage better, but also drawing from it into our context. So there's always a, a first century um, lens that we're viewing the scripture through and pulling it into the 21st century here in Renton, Washington. Um, the, the kind of underlying title for this series has been Doctrine and Devotion. And the reason uh, I put that kind of underneath the letter is uh, most of the content of this letter fits into those two categories, doctrine, devotion. Doctrine meaning teaching. And so we've seen this theme already through this letter, um, that the encouragement to this church, this new church, is to know what is right and to call out what is wrong. And so there's a concern that the church would have right doctrine, right teaching. And then along with that, devotion, that this church would love what is good and do what is good, that there would be right devotion. And this is, this is just how life works, right? What you believe is manifest in how you live. What you believe about yourself, um, about the world around you, the decisions you make. If you have uh, low moral ethics, those are, uh, those, those are from within you, but they, they are um, reflected outside of you. If you have, uh, if you love people, then people will know that they are loved by hanging around with you. And so right doctrine, right devotion is the concern. So then the question would be, well, why are we walking through this letter as a church? Why of all the 66 books in the Bible are we reading this together? Well, first of all, it's in the Bible and we're a Bible-based church. So we're always going to look at God's word. It is the sole standard for how we practice our faith. 
But as I was praying about this particular text, there was a couple of things that I thought about that are relevant in our current day that we're wrestling with. One is there is a lot of confusion in our culture about what is right and what is wrong. Maybe you've heard the phrase, we live in a post-truth culture. Post-truth culture, right? Where everybody questions everything. Nothing is sacred. Everything should be deconstructed and wondered if it is true. And so because of that, we as a church want to know what is true, what is right. We want right doctrine. The other thing is we do as a church want to be people that reflect the goodness of God in everything we do. Let me say that again. We want to be a a church that reflects the goodness of God in everything we do. And so as we've been walking through this letter, whether you're just joining us today or you've been with us the whole time, um, these are some of the reasons that the letter was written, and these are why it's applicable to us today. So we're going to finish this letter looking at the last chapter, chapter 3, and the subtitle for today would be The Culture of a Saved Community. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open to chapter 3. Marcella just read us part of the text that we're going to look at together, but I want you to go ahead and just take a moment. It's, it's a short passage. And read these verses by yourself. If you don't own a Bible, there are some in the pews. Um, if you have a smartphone, you can easily download one as well. But I want you just where you're at, just to take a moment, read chapter 3 of Titus. Um, and then we're going to unpack it together as we finish out this, this letter. So right where you're at, go for it. Somebody fell off the stool. I think they're okay.
All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that was given to your church a long time ago and how you preserved it for us. You've given it to us today to guide us and to lead us into what is right and what is true. And Lord, as we finish out this text this morning, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement. And most of all, Lord, that we would come away uh, from our time this morning with a sense of your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who are you? Who are you? As a believer in Christ, as a member of his church, who are you? That's one of the things that is present in this text that we just read. In fact, the portion that Marcella just read, starting in verse 4, gives us very clearly identity statement about who we are. Verses 4 through 7, we see this word, saved. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. And who saved us? Jesus Christ, our Savior. What is a Savior? A Savior is one who delivers somebody from grave danger. This is the time of year when our family loves to go swimming. And just last week, 4th of July, we went to Nolte State Park and we kayaked and swam out in the water. And I'm thankful that most of my kids are pretty good swimmers. I have a memory of when one of them was not such a good swimmer, but thought that they were. I won't name names. We were in a friend's pool and they decided they would get out into the deep end of the pool and away from where the rest of us were. And in seconds, they realized they weren't as strong as swimmers as they thought they were at that young age. And they began to sink. And so, thankfully, I was watching them. And I saved my child from drowning. I have a similar memory when I was that same age, thinking that I could swim. And I, my mom was not watching me. And I began to drown in a deep part of a river. And the next thing I know, I was being yanked out by another mom who had been watching me, and she saved my life at age six. What does it mean to, to be saved? Well, Jesus, he saves us, not in that physical, tangible sense that we often think of, but he, he saved us from the destiny that we are on, the track that we are on because of our own sin, our own immorality, our own disregard for God that always leads to death. And so we see Jesus saves by his sacrifice. Jesus didn't just pluck us out of our sin, but he actually died in place of our sin. He took it on himself. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty we couldn't pay. And he reversed the curse that kept us from God. And so this is the identity of the people of God, is that we are saved from that destiny to a new one, and Jesus is our Savior. And so this is really the gospel distilled right in this, this, year, this passage in verses 4 through 7. But starting out this particular chapter, Paul wants us to remember where we have come from and where we are 
now. So he gives some kind of contrasting examples. One is who we are to be. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What's the point? The point is to remember where we've come from and who we are to be now. We aren't who we once were. My wife and I, this uh, week, are celebrating 20 years of marriage. We actually got married just, just up the 405 in Bothell 20 years ago. Um, we are actually living in California, where I'm from at the time, but we came up. Uh, I came up for the wedding, and then we moved down, down there together after the wedding. And when I think about what, when we talk about this all the time, what we, we think about what we called love 20 years ago, we kind of laugh at each other. We go, oh, they were so cute. The, the former us, what we thought was love, we had no idea. Now it is so much deeper and richer, and it just keeps on getting that way. When you think back at who you once were in high school, in middle school, in college, the knowledge, the wisdom, the culture, the experience, all those things that contributed to who you were at that moment. You aren't the same, are you? Some of you have moved from different countries to the United States, and the cultures that you left behind now have a different feel, and you've maybe adopted some of the values and cultures of the, your new country that you've come from. You're different than you used to be. When Jesus calls people into relationship with them, he calls them into a new way of thinking. And scripture calls this repentance. We talk about this a lot. Repentance is not just the guy on the street corner angrily saying, repent now or you're going to go to hell. Repentance is, is more than just a, a thing that you say. It's a new way of thinking. It's a, it's a change of mind. And so when Paul says these words, he's, he's reminding the people who they once were and now who they're called to be. Repentance comes with a new way of living. And so then he gives these few examples. A few examples of how this new culture, this new community of faith is to live differently. And some of these may be offensive to you still today. <laughs> the first one, be subject or submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient to them. When we hear that immediately, I don't know about you, but I immediately begin to rationalize. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Wait a second. <laughs> you don't know what kind of rulers we have. You don't know what kind of politicians we have. You don't know about the unjust laws that we have. Wait a second. Yeah, but. Paul is saying, hey, I want you to, to have a change of mind. I want you to, to see these things in their proper place. That doesn't mean that you have to agree on everything that is done. That doesn't mean you have to vote for these rulers and authorities. But it does mean that we are to respect, to honor, and even to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2, 
exhort the church to do that, to pray for our leaders. Another example he gives of this new community, this this new way of thinking, is that the, the people of Christ are not to slander, to speak evil of who? Of anyone. Of anyone. Not the telemarketer that called you and is annoying. Not the bad waiter. Not the guy who cut you off downtown. It actually happened to me on the way into the church this morning. But I'm not going to speak evil of him. <laughs> do not slander. Do not speak evil of anyone. This is, again, a mark of the new community. You know what happens when you do do that, right? It brings what? Into the community. It brings division and divisiveness. You know what happens when we, when we are always speaking ill of our political leaders and of those around us? It, it brings a, a sense of negativity, a spirit of negativity into to the church. So we are to not do those things. Paul continues and he says that as a people of God, we're to be peaceable and considerate. Peaceable and considerate, not stirring up unnecessary conflict or division. That we are to be gentle to who? To everyone. So these are just some of the values, not all of the values, but these are just some of the values of a, a community of people who have been saved by Jesus. And sometimes it's good to have a comparison. When we're given a new vision, a new way of living, it's, it's good to also be reminded, have a comparison of the old ways so that we can see these new ways more clearly. And so he says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul is speaking specifically into the cultural moment that these people lived. He's saying these are, these are kind of markers of the culture, and now you are not to live that way anymore. And man, when I read these words, I cannot help but think how similar it is to our current day. Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. I mean, all we have to do is, is watch uh, what is on our streaming t- our channels, right? And we see passions and pleasures are elevated. These are the things that grab us and then enslave us. We see the, the malice and envy through social media directed at people that we don't like. Hated and hating one another. There was a recent Gallup poll that had asked Americans about the moral state of the country. 54% of Americans rated the morality of our country as poor. 54%. But listen to this. A record 83% of Americans said America's morals is, are getting worse. 83%. At least they're honest, right? We're, we we seeing, we're seeing immorality elevated in our culture, and people are going, hmm, our morals are getting worse. I wonder why. So the culture of Jesus, of a saved community of people, is to look different. At one time, we too were enslaved by these things. So in a world, our current world, that doesn't trust media, or politicians, or scientists, or pastors, 
there is somebody who can still be trusted. And this leads us back to the passage that Marcella read. But, but, but when the kindness and love of, our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So, so Paul says, hey, this is, these are some mark, markers of, of the saved community of Christ, that we are peaceable, that we are pray for our leaders. Hey, remember what you came out of. And remember how you came out of it. Jesus met you where you're at. Jesus offered you a better way. Jesus can be trusted. The ways of Jesus are excellent and profitable for everyone. Maybe as you were hearing that phrase, justified by his grace, you wondered, what on earth does that mean? Sounds like a lot of Christianese right there. When someone is justified... That means that they are declared morally righteous. Morally righteous. This is a kind of can be a legal term. It means you're not guilty of what you were accused of. That you're free to go. That you can live your life to the full. No guilt, no shame. You're good. Now, Maybe you didn't commit a crime before you came to church this morning, so you don't feel that guilty. <laughs> but how many in this room are morally righteous? You've not thought an evil thought. You've not done an evil thing. You haven't cheated on your taxes. You didn't speak harshly to one of your family members on the way out the door. Like, none of us, right? None of us in this room are morally righteous. None of us are without Sin. So what does justified by his grace mean? It means that Jesus did something on our behalf so that we could be, before God, declared morally righteous. This righteousness that Jesus gives us means that we can have a relationship with a perfect and holy God. Jesus' gift to us, his justification through grace is a restored relationship with God. Jesus took the penalty for all our immorality, and then he says, you are free. Here's your life. Live it to the full. My righteousness is given to you. Justification is a powerful work of the grace of Jesus. And this grace, this favor that Jesus gives us, Here's what you have to do to, to earn it, okay? You guys taking notes? Nothing. Short notes. Because you weren't good enough to earn it anyways. Who could earn this grace? 
as Paul says in verse 5. He says, this grace is given to you not by your righteousness. And so the message of Jesus is not an announcement to try harder. It's a declaration of mercy. There's this song that we, the church has been singing for quite some time. And even if you're not a church person, you probably know this song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Some of you know the story of the man who wrote this song. His name was John Newton. And he was a slave trader making serious money in the slave trade. And then he met Jesus. And Jesus began to change his heart. And he gave up the slave trade. And he wrote this song as a self-reflection. Listen to this again. Think of, the, think of these words coming from somebody who used to, to steal and kidnap people and sell them into slavery. Amazing grace. What, what amazing grace is that? The grace of Jesus. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Somebody used to trade, steal, destroy a family's lives. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Grace, the grace of God, given to somebody like John Newton. And grace doesn't just stop at justification, what Jesus did. Jesus' saving grace then begins to work in our lives, begins to restore identity and change destiny. And so verse 7, we see that through what Jesus did, God himself adopts us. Where do you see that, Andrew? Well, look at We become what? Heirs. Heirs of God. Having the hope of what God has, eternal life. So we're justified by what? By his grace. And then we're given the position of sons and daughters so we have heirs of eternity with him. And grace does change us. This kind of love and forgiveness is powerful. It reorients our very lives. And so following Jesus for us means to then enter into that relationship as sons and daughters to do what he did. It isn't just good and nice. It's the best. And so the community of Christ followers devote themselves to the same type of living that Jesus did, to devote themselves to what is good. Too many American Christians have actually put themselves on the same level as Jesus. And when that happens, what we often do is we cheapen the grace of Jesus. We water down his righteousness. It's kind of like a, a smorgasbord of options. I'll be like Jesus in this area, but I, this area is not that important. And then discipleship, following Jesus, really isn't a thing because Jesus is just our homeboy. And so for many who claim Christ, following Jesus has actually become optional. I'll only follow him when I feel like it or when it's convenient for me or when the things in Scripture, um, when I agree with them. 
And so this type of Christianity actually is not a type of Christianity that you will find anywhere in the Bible. (laughs) It's either Jesus or not Jesus. It's either you will follow him or you won't follow him. It's either you've received his grace and you're letting it affect your life, or you've rejected that grace. There's no nodding and smiling to Jesus and pretending to follow him. John Newton, when he repented of his past, he didn't just say, okay, well, I'm good now. No, then he said, I'm going to partner with Jesus in bringing goodness to the world, and I am going to actively war against the institution of slavery. John Newton would eventually write a pamphlet against slavery that would be delivered to every political leader in England. And by God's grace, just months before he died, he was able to see the abolition of slavery come to pass in the United Kingdom. So he didn't just say, well, that, glad that I received Jesus. He says, no, now that I've received him, now that I, this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, I want to participate in what Jesus is about. So in the culture of a saved community, we are constantly amazed at the grace of Jesus, at what his justification for us really means, that God would look at us and he would see morally righteous people. And because of that, we could have a relationship with him. And as a people of faith, we wholeheartedly embrace the ways of Jesus' righteousness. If he's given us his righteousness, which he has, then we want to walk out that righteousness. Which means that we would embrace a morality that the old us would have laughed at, that the old us would have scoffed at, that the old us would have made fun of us for. We say, the righteousness of Christ is my clothing now. It is how I am called to live. I don't care what the world says. And so lastly, with this saving grace in mind that works through the community, We are tasked to guard this community that Christ has built with everything we have. And not just for our benefit. We're good. But for those who haven't yet received the grace of Jesus, we want to guard this community. And so Paul finishes in verse 9 by saying this. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. In other words, there are people within the family of, of Christ that do not want to follow Jesus. Warn them about it, warn them again, but if they still really don't want to follow Jesus, deal with it. All it's going to do is infect the community. So in verse 3, we're reminded that in the culture of a saved community, we have to put off our old ways, and here we're told to be aware of foolishness that will divide that same community. When uh, we bought our first home in Spokane some years ago, we had uh, our, this really nice lawn in the front yard, and I'd never had a lawn before, so I'm like, I'm going to keep this baby green and beautiful. 
And right on the, the edge of the lawn in the front yard, there was a kind of a bark strip. And it had like, I think they call it beauty bark, which I think is good marketing. But, um, and I remember uh, a couple of years that after we lived there, I saw in the, in the bark this pretty nice looking little clover appear. And it started to kind of spread out. It had beautiful little yellow flowers. And I thought, wow, I'm just going to let that, that stuff go. That looks really nice. It'll, it'll take over the beauty bark, and I'll have beautiful green lawn and nice clover with flowers. I had no idea that this clover was an invasive weed. That in the fall, it has these little pods that if you just touch the pods, they literally explode and sh- can shoot up to 20 feet seeds, which then began to infect my grass. Within a short amount of time, I started seeing those little yellow flowers all over my grass. And I went, "Uh uh-oh. I let it go. I never should have. Nobody told me. (laughs) Nobody told me it was a weed. And it began to take over my first lawn, my beautiful lawn. This is what happens when we don't deal with things that are contrary to the righteousness of Jesus within the church. If you don't deal with foolishness and divisive people, those things will infect the community, and they will take over. Now, while we might not be concerned with some of the issues um, that were listed here back then, like genealogies, (laughs) we still do deal with the same spirit. It's a spirit of foolishness and division. The Greek word for the word foolish here is moros, where we get the word moron from. Deal with this foolishness. In my day, we had a lot of foolishness in the church that had to do with the end times. Everybody was trying to predict when Jesus was going to come back, trying to predict who the next Antichrist were. Some of you are old enough to remember that it was Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, he had a mark, a mark of the beast. It was a birthmark on his forehead. Um, or there was foolish controversies that Visa, like the, the credit card, was the mark of the beast because VI is six in Roman numerals and S is six and A is, you know, it's like whatever. And so our, my church, we get so preoccupied with this kind of, these kind of foolish myths that, that at times we lose sight of the gospel. And it, all it did was bring in fear into the church. It was foolishness. In our day, we have foolishness too. We have QAnon conspiracy theories that were running rampant during the last election. We have political idolatry where Bible-believing Christians actually think a specific president is going to usher in some sort of godly kingdom. Absurd. We have pagan social movements that many in the church are saying are totally fine. And so we fly the flags and we participate in the the adventures that are happening, like things that happened this last month. Foolishness. Paul says avoid them. I think it's wise to not even comment at times on them, to not even enter into those things. We can talk about a bunch of specific things in our culture, but there's also a little, a million little things There's a million little things that compete for our affections to get our eyes off what Jesus has done, his saving grace. Don't let them. Don't let them. Don't let the seeds of division take root. Let me say this even more clearly. I think it's biblical. 
don't be a moron. Just don't. And you know what? We have every right to warn each other when we're being morons. <laughs> Lovingly. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the righteousness of Jesus. Come on. Let's focus on the right thing. So after a few final acknowledgments, Paul wraps up this letter with one appeal for the community of faith to be a blessing to those in need and to live fruitful lives. He acknowledges a few of his friends. He says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. And here's his final appeal. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. This is who we want to be too. We want to be a saved community, reflecting the culture of Christ, providing for those who are in need, and bearing fruit that comes from the gospel of grace. As theologian Francis Schaeffer put it, we want to be God's demonstration community, his final witness to the lost world. So in closing, I know this morning we have a, a wide range of people uh, that are here in this room. Some online too, maybe. There's some people that haven't received the grace of Jesus and some who are deeply aware of it on a daily basis. Saved a wretch like me. If you're the former, if you have not received the grace of Jesus, I want you to know, you may not be able to trust your politicians or your media, but Jesus can be trusted. I know we have a variety of struggles in this room, too. Many of us wrestling with various things. And that's why we need to be reminded about what the culture of a saved community looks like. Because as the old hymn says, Come Thou Fount, we are prone to wander prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Whether it's political idolatry, progressive sexual confusion, or just our old addictions and sins coming back to knock on the door of our hearts. While we were never righteous enough to save ourselves, following Jesus means that little by little, step by step, we are becoming more so. Jesus gave us our life back. And so the more we follow his lead, the more we become who we were meant to be. I can say this. I love being a part of this church family. I love it. I love the, the grace that is displayed on a continual basis. I love the prayers that happen in the bistro randomly. I love the people that are supporting members that are hurting, like the Williams family. I love those that engage with the community 
to meet felt needs. I love seeing the church follow the ways of Jesus. And I'm confident that if we continue to commit to following Jesus together, that our best days are ahead. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.